Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week, William Shatner takes a director's chair to help us find God. It's 1989 Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again back to Bonzilla Presents Star Trek Edition. I am Nick. I'm Will. And it's time for us to dig into another uh, Star Trek movie, um, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, uh, directed by one William Shatner, Bill Shatner himself. I was about to say me. I did it. You, I directed it. Awesome. It all let's, talk by, about, let's talk about my movie. All by um, yourself, Will. Yeah, so anyway, so yeah, this is actually the commentary track for the <laughs> film. Um, I'm the director of the film. Uh, it is one of those fan commentary tracks. Thank you, Shout Factory, for letting this become a thing. And um, yeah, and uh, let's get going. So I decided to start this film out with opening credits. Because um, everybody's always like, oh, there's like the closing credits. But what about the opening credits? And Well, I mean, you're, you're already wrong, so you don't even know your own movie. So you don't start with the opening credits, but we'll talk about that. No, we're talking about my movie, not this movie. Oh, my. right, right. Okay, yeah, yours. Is, yeah, you, my you, Final Frontier. Yeah, you're you're very different Final Frontier. Yes, we're, we're we're looking for the ultimate chicken wings, and that that's that that is that that is mine. And then and then we find a giant chicken who needs our car for some reason. Mm. And then that, that's kind. Of Kind of the plot of this movie. That's essentially, really. really yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Distilled yeah. down. Um, so the one thing before we actually get into it, uh, just a funny note that just a Bondzilla-ish note was that I was going through um, some older Bond episodes from, from back in the day. And then it hit me and I'm like, oh man, we still have to review No Time to Die eventually on this podcast, which is just kind of funny that that's just... You know, apparently, you know, we we have it in sight, but it's funny that that still hasn't happened to me. I don't know. Mm -hmm. just And remembering that, like, yes, we will have to do that at some point, which I'm excited to do, but just kind mm -hmm. of a, a weird reminder. But that's that's for the future. Here is the now. Uh, we are going to be talking about 1989's Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And as we usually do, we have a little bit of a, a pre-production to discuss here. Uh, and there's certainly... Let's do it. Uh, a number of things to talk about. So we're off the very big success of Star Trek for the voyage home, you know, technically speaking, highest grossing, just most money making Star Trek movie, most popular Star Trek movie about audiences. Paramount's riding high at this point, you know, they've had their very successful Star Trek movie. They have parlayed that now into a brand new Star Trek television series, which is on the air in production and they are riding high as Star Trek is their, their golden goose and, and they're, they're feeling good about it. And so one of the things that they know about if they produce another movie with the original series cast is that it is William Shatner that is up to direct the movie. 
um, basically how this worked out is Shatner was, you know, very shrewd negotiator, very well, uh, was able to give himself a lot of good money and good, you know, extras over the years. And one of the things that he did negotiate once he, you know, decided he was going to do the voyage home, which was never in doubt, but when he decided to do the voyage home was that he would be able to have the option to direct Star Trek V if Star Trek V were to be made. And after the big success of Star Trek Trek IV, of course, Star Trek V was going to get made. So Shatner was the first to be asked. And you know, Shatner had said, like, you know, he had wrapped up his duties on TJ Hooker, so he was now more free to think about directing. And he had seen the success that Leonard Nimoy had, not only with the Star Trek films, but, you know, the year after The Voyage Home happened, you know, Leonard Nimoy was now a director and had, um, you know, directed the very highly successful Three Men and a Baby for Disney and was working on a Disney attraction, which would become body wars, hashtag bring back body wars, look it up on YouTube. And so Shatner saw, okay, well, I wanted to direct and, and Nimoy gave his full support to Shatner for directing. Nimoy was kind of like, I'm done with Trek. You know, I, I'm kind of moving on to these other things, but I think Shatner should get his opportunity. So Shatner was like, okay, I'm going to direct Star Trek five and Paramount had no, no issue with that. They were like, cool, go ahead and, and do your thing. And like with Nimoy on the voyage home, Paramount said, okay, Shatner, we're looking for your vision. So whatever kind of Star Trek movie you want to make, go ahead and make it. And so Shatner basically had gotten a lot of inspiration from televangelists. He was, yeah, he said that he specifically was looking at a very specific televangelist set on TV and was just kind of almost appalled and intrigued at just how, you know, kind of messed up it was that they were able to kind of get all these followers and all this money. And, and really in a lot of times these televangelists were, were not great people or, or weren't really, you know, showcasing what they were preaching, yada, yada, yada. So he just kind of got this thought about religion and televangelists and kind of this kind of cult, you know, following, Alongside this idea that he, you know, he viewed Trek as something where it's like, yes, you have fun with these characters and these, these characters have great, you know, banter and relationships and entertaining with each other. But a lot of times, you know, his favorite Star Treks from the series were the ones about something, about some sort of issue or about relating it kind of back to people's real life interactions and questions and so he said well what was what was a bigger issue and a bigger question than like where is god is god out there can we find god so he kind of thought well i will tell this serious issue through the guise of kind of these characters that we love and characters that we know that we were going to be you know following but with this sort of idea of god and his original plan was like they go out to find god but they find the devil instead and so he kind of formulates this plot uh, that is in his first outline known as Star Trek V, an act of love. And many of the elements of the movie, such as like the Yosemite vacation at the beginning and the kind of hostage situation and the, the Vulcan character, which is known as Czar, later Cybok, who we'll talk about. Uh, we're all in this version. But the biggest detail that changes is sort of the second half of the movie where an original concept of Shatner's Shatner or Kirk was the only one who never 
joined the Cybok's cause, that even Spock and McCoy were convinced to to join Cybok's cause. And it was basically Kirk against everybody. And eventually they go to this planet, which does turn out to be hell, essentially, and find the devil. This version of the script is, or this outline is completely dismissed by both Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, who both basically disagree with the fact that Spock or McCoy would ever turn on Kirk and essentially refuse to do the script as is, that they just felt it was very out of character for their characters. And though Shatner admitted that, like, oh, if someone came up to me and said, oh, like, Kirk turns against Spock and McCoy, he'd probably have similar qualms, he did always want to see that kind of original vision of the film. So as he's putting the script together, as he's putting this idea together, Shatner goes up to Harv Bennett who, of course, has been producing everything since Star Trek II. But Bennett is a little weary about doing this film for a number of reasons. Number one, he's kind of getting burnt out on the Star Trek thing. He felt that, you know, Nimoy got so much of the credit for the success of The Voyage Home, and Bennett thought that, you know, he did contribute a lot to that movie. And he was a little trepidatious about doing this religious thing that he felt like he didn't know if audiences would go along with it. He didn't know if it would cause controversy. But, but Shatner essentially kind of thought that Harv was extremely important to these movies and the way they've gone and basically gave him the, I need you, I need you speech from the motion picture. And Harv eventually comes on board. Their first task together is to assuage Roddenberry's issues with this script because he feels it's infringing on his original The God Thing script that was before the motion picture to the point where Roddenberry is kind of actually considered suing Shatner and, and, and Paramount for like, you know, not going along with his original God Thing script. But eventually Roddenberry's work on The Next Generation sort of kind of forces him out of really doing a lot with this movie in particular. They get together a screenwriter by the name of David Lowry uh, to kind of really capture, you know, Shatner's vision of this sort of man, you know, this kind of cult figure leading these group on this people, taking the Enterprise and leading them to find God. This is also going around the writer's strike and, you know, delays in production because, you know, Nimoy's having other directing projects and Shatner has to do like another commitment. So basically Paramount is worried at this point that they're losing the momentum of the voyage home, that the voyage home was super successful, but this movie keeps getting delayed. And so they basically like, okay, no more delays. We're setting a hard date summer of 89. That's it for everybody. We're going to get you guys on this movie summer of 89 which is kind of a little bit of a rush job just in terms of once everybody's actually able to get together that it is kind of moving the movie a little bit too fast, but Shatner is extremely confident in his idea and has a lot of great ideas to really make this movie work. Um, And that starts with the casting. So obviously everybody from the original team gets back together, you know, Shatner and, and Nimoy and Forrest, Forrest Kelly and Michelle Nichols, everybody, everybody's on board. Everybody's here. Uh, but the main role they have to cast is this new Vulcan kind of cult leader in Cybok. Uh, so Cybok, of course, is, you know, eventually revealed to be Spock's kind of half stepbrother, which was a Harv Bennett idea to give more weight to Spock's decision making in this movie. And Shatner from day one had it in his head that this was going to be Sean Connery. Sean Connery, you know, of course, was coming off of, you know, his his renaissance of a career after uh, Never Say Never Again was successful and he had been in all these movies. And Shatner had 
had just had it in his head. Like I'm writing this role for Sean Connery and Sean Connery was interested and there were negotiations, but the constant delay to 89 prevented Connery from doing it because Connery had to do Indiana Jones and the last crusade though. David Lowry, the writer did still sneak in a reference to Sean Connery in the script because the planet in which the god creature inhabits is named Shakari, <laughs> Sean Connery, in a, in a planet name form. Right. So once, um, once Connery basically said no, it kind of threw Shatner for a loop of just like, okay, well, Connery was the only person I ever really thought of for this role. So what am I going to do now? So they, another couple other big names were considered, which is like Max von Sydow and, and a couple of other kind of those types of names from the era. But eventually the role is played by Lawrence Luckinbill. And Luckinbill was basically not really a film actor. And even after this movie, he never really does much more film or TV. And he never really, he didn't really do much of film TV. What he was noted as was a stage actor. Particularly Luckinbill was very notable about doing these kind of one man shows about historical figures, which a lot of them he wrote himself. He had done one about um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. He had played Ernest Hemingway and uh, most famously at this point, he had done a one man show where he played Lyndon Johnson, former president, Lyndon Johnson and Shatner saw uh, Lucky Bill do his, um, his Lyndon Johnson uh, for a TV show, like just kind of a variety show type thing, and immediately called him and said, hey, do you want this part? And Lucky Bill was like, absolutely. Like, I never get offers like this. Like, sign me up, please. Give it to me. So Lucky Bill uh, immediately signs on, and so they basically just have their Cybok right away. Um, I do also want to mention that uh, George Murdoch plays the god creature at the end of the movie originally he was contacted to play the kind of uh klingon diplomat in the movie uh and 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 shatner basically hyped this guy up was like you're gonna play this part but paramount still wanted to do auditions and when um charles cooper auditioned for this role shatner thought like oh this performance is exactly what i want but shatner you know as a consolation for getting george murdoch out of the out of the klingon role gave him the god role at the end of the movie so in terms of other stuff, I do want to also note that Shatner's one of Shatner's big decisions at the uh, beginning of the movie was to hire the uh, set designer uh, for the next generation as the production designer for the movie, because Shatner was very impressed with that first season of the next generation and how the enterprise looked in that, in that show and looked great for television and thought that he would be able to kind of pull that sort of design style for the the movie itself which kind of was nice because it was able to unify sort of the star trek design at that point that the brand new enterprise a kind of has very similar design structures to the future enterprise d and so kind of makes that connection as well uh he does retain a lot of the crew from the previous films and also shatner another big decision he makes early on is he immediately contacts jerry goldsmith to return to do the score because uh, Shatner still felt that the motion picture had the best score of these films. And uh, as you probably heard in the movie, Goldsmith reuses and, and readapts a lot of his themes from the motion picture for the score of this movie. 
Now, the, the main story of kind of what happens during this movie is the movie is pretty much mostly what this new version of the script Shatner is, kind of that altered version of an act of love to turn into the final frontier where, you know, Spock and McCoy don't turn on him and there's this big thing at the end where there's going to be a giant fight in Shatner's head with like 10 rock monsters that the planet is going to look like heaven turn into hell. These rock monsters are going to breathe fire, yada, yada, yada. It's going to be a big action sequence. And in fact, that was one of the things that the cast noted the most about this movie is they felt that, especially DeForest Kelly said specifically that the movie was kind of, he, he was the most tired after this movie because it was kind of the most action heavy movie in his eyes. And that's because that's reflect Shatner as a director, that Shatner is a very big on the action parts of Trek. So there's going to be a lot of action every moment but the thing is is that of course they still need to have not just the kind of directorial action but the special effects and unfortunately for Shatner and the Star Trek crew the team that they had worked with at Industrial Light and Magic since Star Trek 2 was basically just not available because they were simultaneously working on the Last Crusade, as well as Ghostbusters 2. So basically all the big wigs at Industrial Light and Magic were just were just not available. And, mm-hmm. um, and because we got to consider too that, you know, they had been working with ILM since Star Trek 2. And when we go back to the motion picture, the motion picture was at the end of that in-house studio effects team era, right? Where like basically at this point, Disney was the only holdover of like a studio that really had its own in-house effects team. And that basically dies with Tron. And now with the wake of industrial light and magic sort of reinvigorating this, this uh, special effects industry in a brand new light, a lot of different new effects studios were popping up. And so eventually because industrial light and magic were not available, uh, they went to another film company uh, called Associates and Farron, who was uh, led by a man named Brian Farron. And Farron, um, their company had worked on some movies, no- notably at this point, Little Shop of Horrors was one of their, one of their main kind of claims to fame. Another movie called Altered States. Uh, and they were based out of New York. So instead of being in the, in the height of all this where the movie was being filmed, all the special effects were kind of being produced outside of New York. So there was a lot of kind of more conferencing between what was going on with what was happening in New York and what was happening in, uh, in LA with the shooting. So they were doing special effects shots in LA and sending them back to New York. And New York was trying to work on these rock monsters and work on kind of the different effects of the new enterprise and all this sort of everything about that. But the thing about associates and Farron is they were a much smaller company than Industrial Light and Magic and didn't have as much of the tools as Industrial Light and Magic. So um, and regarding to that, Paramount was also being very stingy with the budget because they were trying to get this movie out fast. And they had expected at this point that these Star Trek movies were being made for basically under 20 million. And when this movie ballooned to 33, they were like, okay, that's really our limit. We're not going above... We, we already remember that the motion picture ballooned to like 40, 50, 60, and that screwed us over. We're working to make these movies cheap so we can make that profit. So they really didn't get that much money to throw at Associate and Farron, who are already working with just much lesser technology. Now, not as much computer effects, which were becoming a big thing, and, and just didn't have the tools. 
And this really threw this movie for a loop because most infamously with this movie, in terms of that, the Rockmen, which I've mentioned, obviously are not in the movie. And that's because when they cut together the movie and saw the Rockmen, as Shatner put it, they didn't even look good by the 60s television show standards. The 10 Rockmen were cut down to one Rockman, and the one Rockman, as Shatner put it, basically lumbered around and did nothing. It was supposed to breed fire, but then the Association Fern decided to build a suit. And so they're like, well, we can't breathe fire because it would like affect the stuntman inside. And Shatner's like, well, the Godzilla movies do that stuff all the time. Like, why can't we do that stuff? And essentially, it was just like, it was a mess. And the third act was completely unsalvageable for the movie. And, mm. and that's like the main story in terms of special effects. But there's stories about that all throughout the movie. Like the fact that there was much more like rear projection than, than there had been before. And a lot of the sort of the other bigger effects stuff was just not available to them in terms of what was happening in the movie. You know, they're shooting the movie. So this stuff, this drama is happening. Meanwhile, they're still shooting a movie. They do shoot at Yosemite. Um, and though the Yosemite parks, people would not let them actually climb the mountain with Shatner as they felt it was too dangerous. They could not climb El Capitan. They basically filmed all the climbing sequences with Shatner and Spock in the parking lot. So they, they kind of had the mountains in the background. They built a fake mountain. They put uh, Spock on a, on a seesaw in order to make him look like he was floating. You know, basic kind of movie stuff. Um, as well as um, some of the stuff on the Paradise City was filmed up in the deserts of uh, California. Um, and sort of that also doubled for the planet at the end of, of the movie, which was trying to kind of capture this kind of middle ground between heaven and, and hell because again Shatner's whole vision for this was okay it's going to look like paradise it's going to look like Eden and then it's going to transform into into hell but again Association Fairs just didn't have the wherewithal to kind of make that transition so instead they kind of found a middle ground where kind of this wasteland that kind of looked peaceful was the best that they could go for mm. but Shatner was still very willing to give a lot of his crew members work in the movie of course um but uh, just kind of give him moments uh so that's why there's a moment where Chekhov gets to pretend to be captain and also very infamously Uhura gets to do a little dance in the movie uh which started off as a joke as Lowry the the, the they were trying to figure out how to do this distraction and Lowry was like hey why don't we just have Uhura do a little sexy dance and the Paramount executives are like all right that sounds good. <laughs> and Shatner was 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 on board, and 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 Michelle Nichols especially, you know, was partially a a uh, professional dancer and singer uh, off of her Star Trek time. So she was very happy to kind of get this other side of her on screen. Uh, but unfortunately, as she noted, she was dubbed in the singing part and was very upset about that. But she's still very proud of the dancing in the movie. Um. So. When I talk about those effects, uh, the other thing about that is the other story about the ending of this movie is that when Shatner saw the rough cut without any effects or anything like that, everybody was like very happy with what was going on. And Shatner was like, okay, here we go. I'm doing this. Because again, we've talked about this. Shatner is kind of a very 
egocentric person, but in that is a very anxious person. You know, he's, he's very conscious about himself and how people view him and his image. And so he was very eager to get into this movie and tell the story he was super passionate about, but he was also extremely nervous about the final product of the movie. So when the movie gets its first rough cut, like no special effects, no music or anything, and it gets like kind of praised and, and Shatner's like, okay, we've done this. We've did, we've made it. We've made a good Star Trek movie. It's, it's happening. And then they add in the special effects and these special effects shots. And all of a sudden the pacing is wrecked and the third act doesn't work. So they have to recut the entire third act and cut it out. And Paramount won't give them more money. And the, it, the, it, Shatner sees the movie turning into a disaster. Like he knows this is not working. And he basically says that what saved him in terms of his, his kind of almost mental health was working with his editors. And the editors essentially, he said, turned the sort of this ballooning movie into something, something that I could be proud of. And he, he gave so much credit to like the editing team and his, like the support team at Paramount for like getting him through this movie. Cause Shatner has said that like, this was uh, is a reason that he didn't direct again after this. I mean, also like what happened with the movie itself, but just the nerve wracking experience of that pressure and that the sort of the, the seeing failure right in the eye, because Shatner was witnessing it happen. And he's, he's just incredibly truthfully thankful to like his editors and his team to really kind of make the movie something, which is very nice because I've mentioned before that like, kind of parsing out kind of the Shatnerisms and the Shatner sarcasm when talking about these movies, sometimes it's a little rough to actually get what he feels about these movies because he's very much someone who likes to kind of tell it his way, whether it's not a hundred percent truthful, but it really does genuinely feel that Shatner is very thankful for the people that he worked with on this movie to kind of help him along and make it something that he was at least somewhat proud of at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the story of the movie really is, you know, Shatner's really trying to tell the story he's extremely passionate about, uh, and just sort of his sort of nervousness alongside sort of this, this special effects sort of snafu and sort of even sort of parsing the very controversial side of this religious story because there were a lot of people at Paramount that were worried, and Harv included. Um, and eventually, the CEO of Paramount at the time was essentially like, "I am, I, I, I could be a, I, I could be offended by this. I could say no to this, but I see Shatner's passion." And, and and that's what everybody says about this movie, is whether or not the quality of it, uh, it's Shatner's passion that's really sort of dry, drove the movie forward. Like even um, the last thing I'll mention here is that. Uh, uh, the last thing I'll mention here is George Takai was in this sort of semi-feud with Shatner about, again, sort of some of this egotistical stuff that he felt Shatner had done over the years. But even he had to admit that, like, he was very surprised at Shatner's quality as a director and that he allowed the actors to share his passion and allowed the actors a lot of freedom in what to do. And when even like Sulu is saying that, which we'll talk a lot about that in the next movie in terms of their feud, but there was just a sense of like, everybody could tell that Shatner was genuinely trying to, to showcase kind of something interesting here.
and yeah, I think uh, with that told, I think it's about time for us to get into uh, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, and to finally talk about what God does need with the starship. And that is the quote coming up. Spoilers. We're going to hear it right now. I'll say to It is. It was not. The barrier stood between us, but we breached it. Magnificent. You are the first to find me. We sought only your infinite wisdom. And how did you breach the barrier? With a starship. This starship? Could it carry my wisdom beyond the barrier? It could, yes. Then I shall make use of this starship. It will be your chariot! Excuse me. It will carry my power to every corner of creation. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, what does God need with a starship? Jim, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? He has his doubts. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Then here is the proof you see. Why is God angry? Why? Why have you done this to my friend? He doubts me. You've not answered his question. What does God need with a starship? Do you doubt me? I doubt any God who pain for his own pleasure. All right, here we are. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, the William Shatner-directed film about finding God in the universe. It, it is funny when you think, when that really is just what it all distills down into. Like, mm-hmm. that is like, like, because I guess, like, you could say, like, motion picture. I guess people say motion picture is, like, the boring one. Yeah, that's kind of like what people say. Then there's Rathacon, which is Rathacon. Search for Spock is the one where Spock's dead. Voyage Home is the one with the whales. Mm-hmm. That's how you say that. This is the one where they search for God. Yeah, and then and then there's another one. Right, and the next one is the and then the, and then the, and, the, and the next one. The next one, <laughs> which will the next one is like the Klingon one. So each one of these has right, like right. A, like a number of things. But in many ways, I would say of all of these original series films. In, in many ways, this is the most kind of infamous one um, because of all those elements, because, you know, again, because of the big personality of William Shatner and he's the director and because of the the God thing and because of the what does God need with a starship sort of meme, you know, there, there's a lot of elements of this movie that are pretty well known in infamy for uh, you know, this movie and, and, and not the least about its quality because, I'm just going to, you know, going into this, 
this is easily regarded by many, if not most people, to be the weakest of the original series films and possibly the weakest of the Star Trek films, though that is more kind of up for debate. But pretty much the consensus on this movie is that this is the worst of the original series films. And I'm not going to disagree with that, to be quite honest with you. Um, I do think that it was interesting rewatching this just from my perspective, because obviously I've had my story. I've told it that I, I rewatched all, I watched all these in order when I first got it in like 2018 on the Blu-ray and I watched all them in order and Star Trek five was included in that. But Star Trek five is the one of these that I am the least familiar with because I really would rather rewatch all the other ones. You know, obviously the, the trilogy of three, two, three, and four, I've already exclaimed my love for. And over the years, I have gotten really into the motion picture and just kind of its weirdness and its boldness in many ways and, and sort of just what that movie is. And then we'll talk about six, but six is, is a pretty great feature as well. And this one just kind of stands out as, as something very just different from those other movies. But watching this again was interesting because it really speaks to my love and the ease of getting into these characters, especially, again, that triumvirate of, of Kirk, McCoy, and Spock, in that I still feel that there is a lot to enjoy out of this movie, um, both, you know, good, bad, and unintentionally good, and unintentionally bad. Like, kind of all that kind of plays together. But it, it just really speaks to the fact that like how much I love these characters and how kind of almost easy it is to kind of have fun with these characters that there's still a lot of fun to be had in a movie that, in my opinion, sort of lacks a lot of forward momentum in places. So I had never seen this movie. Mm-hmm. The, we're going back into the territory of I hadn't seen these. And I actually watched this very recently. You and I haven't talked about it yet. No. So going into it, my understanding of it was, I, I think it became, I didn't know too much other about it other than it was the William Shatner directed one. Mm-hmm. And to me, without knowing anything about it, I, I did get the sense that there was, whether rightfully or wrongfully, because I hadn't seen it, that that became kind of part of the punchline in which people talked about it. Yes. You know what I mean? So there was a little bit like, I it didn't, I don't like, I never heard anything about like what the actual quality of the film, other than like, it was one of the least favorite ones and that Shatner directed it. So there is some kind of like that fan humor of like, you know, Nimoy, you know, Nimoy being like the, like the prestigious fan favorite character who everybody loves to, the very ego-driven lead of, of Kirk, you know, getting, you know, and uh, his, his time up at bat, getting it. So I was very interested to going in and seeing it and, and seeing what, like, what got, what got it that, um, that following. And I have to be honest, I think this may be, a debate podcast. Ooh. Cause I thought this was great. Interesting. I'm, I'm, I, I'm interested in this. I, by the time it ended, I was like, Oh, like, I love this. This is like, like, I was like, I, I just thought it was great. I, I, I was, 
I was laughing. I was enjoying myself. I thought it was interesting what it was doing. I thought it, it was, you know, it, it was interesting watching it. And you know how, like, after going through, like, the King Kong movies, yeah, you know, I've kind of expressed, like, this is kind of where I stand with this franchise. Yeah. Going through these movies, I- I'm starting to slowly ever so slightly understand the star trek fandom because i don't think i ever really got it like i i like and in 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 a way and i say this most respectfully but oftentimes i feel here's the most respectful i don't think i'm as precious of trek probably understandably so because i'm more of a casual viewer of it yeah. So there were aspects of the film where I can understand where, okay, this is probably what people talk about when they say it's getting further from what they like about Trek. And I just found myself just not being as precious about those things. Mm-hmm. And, and there were a few things like there, there were a few things that I thought were a little odd. Like I, I felt like every now and then there was kind of like a bit of like fun that didn't quite land. I thought like there was some, kind of strange Ohara stuff going on in the film. Mm-hmm. But overall, like I, I don't know. Like I I I I like I was at the end of the film and I was like, oh fuck. Like I was I was enjoying it the whole time. I, I just I thought it was great. Like to the to the point where I again I would probably and this is all a matter of preference where like I found myself on a certain level enjoying it in a way that I hadn't enjoyed maybe since Wrath of Khan, which is probably the perfect one, mm-hmm. easily. Interesting. Um, and then in a slightly different way, because this to me was like, it was like the fun that I was having with Voyage Home, but this one had, I mean, in my opinion, to kind of, you know, not go against you too much, but had a more propelled, like, space adventure plot to it. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. and and the and the only last thing I'll say is, remember my reaction to seeing what was it? Never say never again. Yes, where I'm like, oh, dude, this is like my Bond movie. Now I don't know if I would say that as strongly about this for Trek, but I was watching it saying like this had almost everything that I would want, especially from this movie up until like uh, up at this point because i actually think that retroactively this series of movies is actually like paying off from movie to movie yes um and then also it's interesting also not knowing much about the next one what's the next one the next one is undiscovered country undiscovered country knowing nothing about that one but some slight like i know it's got klingon stuff in it so it's interesting like seeing like all that is probably going to come to a head in the next one. Yes. But so anyway, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I may be on the side of like, I, I, I was a fan. I, I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing I should say is that yes, like I, I, to me personally, it's like my least favorite of the original series films. That isn't to say that I think this is a, a totally bad movie. Like I think that this movie was and still is a little bit too harshly viewed upon. And I think some of it is like sort of the meme potential and the Shatner stuff, because I really do think 
The one thing I also will say, and I really thought about this when I was watching it this time, of all the movies that we've seen so far, this really feels the most, in the best way and in some bad ways for me, like an episode of the original series. Because yes. I can really see the demake of this. Like if you demade this in the style of the seven of the of the 60s series, like you would you basically could tell the exact same plot, but just with those 60s effects and some big actor in the 60s playing Cybok. Like and it and it, it's really nice because I think that Shatner really captures that aesthetic. And one of the things that he went to do is that this film, more than any of the other Trek films, really captures the even original sound effects of the enterprise from that 60s series. And I think Shatner does have such a nice means of, of showcasing that side of track. As he kind of mentioned the, the it's about an issue and you still enjoy the characters and you still enjoy, you know, the, the adventure of it and the action, but there is like a, 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 a central issue going forward and then kind of the fighting God. And that very much captures that aesthetic of the original series. Mm. And again, it's like, I am it's just at a point where it's just like I just really enjoy seeing what Kirk, Kirk McCoy and, and Spock together and seeing Shatner, Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly just play off each other. Cause you can so, just tell that they always have the best time with them. So in your opinion though, so what is the issue with the film? Do you do you feel? I feel that personally speaking, that that there's just I think it actually starts off pretty strong and despite all the issues ends on a good pretty note. strong. The, oh, the, the first 15 minutes of this movie are excellent. Yes. I will yeah, not, I will, I will hear no dissent on this. I, I kind of feel like there's just a little part in kind of the middle that it's just, it just feels like there's really not much for me going on. Mm. Um, but again, it's like, I'm not trying to say it's bad. I just feel like it's just, to me, it's just, I kind of just like all the other ones better because mm. especially just in the sense of just having rewatched these all in a row again, and, and just, again, just really digging the characters and the world. And I think that that kind of really propels because I think in a previous era, I had much more of an issue with the actual plotting of the movie, but when watching it this time, it's like, okay, well, I'm still following Kirk and McCoy and Spock and just seeing them interact carries the movie more for me even if like some of the actual like sort of what's happening on the enterprise isn't really, you know, I wish I was a little bit more going on. I do think that the characters themselves is really propel this franchise and really helps me to just enjoy it. And I genuinely, if, if I, it. if I had to distill what I think the issue is that people have is that it definitely is the most modern feeling of the movies that we watched thus far in the terms of it is a more traditional fun at the movies interplay between characters, mm -hmm. some set pieces, like things like that. But to me, it, it because it, it had those shades of what people or what Trek fans dissented upon with like the Kelvin films. Right. But what distinctly made it, like great to me was that it was still pared down where you know it still had its like action but it was very much about the interplay between the characters mm -hmm. like it was like it, it just it, it felt pared down to the point where and it's so funny that you mention about 
that they had to redo the ending because to me, I like where it all ended up. Like I, I basically like just kind of like the streamlined version of it. And I understand that maybe from like, especially at this point in the series that from a movie perspective, like, yeah, it is kind of like they're on this adventure and then they go find it. And when they find it, it's just, it, there's really no big thing other than it's not what we thought. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? So I, I under, I can sympathize with that aspect of it. But I also felt myself being like, I don't know, like I was okay with like, they're not being like a huge thing. Like, it's not yeah. like this big, like, you know, other than like, you know, that the real God is the friends we made along the way. I, mm. I was kind of, okay with me just sitting down and watching an adventure and that being the ultimate lesson right i think i think there's the thing that that does kind of other people will criticize or just the feeling of this movie in the sense of like you know the the star trek films even from motion picture all the way on there's always this kind of big feeling of the big epic adventure and there's kind of like the real purpose of like Oh, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of been this big ass battle with Khan. Oh, we got to like resurrect Spock. It's this big deal. Oh, we're going on this silly adventure with big ass whales that like the fate of the universe is at stake. And I think that on the one hand, there is sort of, again, that sort of TV show feeling where it's like, it is very much for finding God. It's a very much smaller scale story in many ways. It is a more personal story, um, you know, for Cybok and for, for Kirk in many ways. And I think that some people will take criticism of that. And I think that, again, previous life, I probably would have said something to that extent. Now I'm very much like, no, I, I kind of like that little difference about it. And again, I think, yeah, I just think that, I, I do think that people are too harsh on this movie. Well, I don't, so this I is, don't think that it's like the, it's definitely not the worst. Oh, I will get to my least favorite Trek movie when we get there. I, I have I will, a lot of thoughts on it. Let, let me say that, because I think that, I think that, you at least are grabbing onto this aspect of it. So I know that we will probably agree on this. And I think this may work for me a little bit more is that I just found myself so engaged and enamored with the interplay between the characters. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a to biggest... the point where that was the heart and the soul of the film. And it never wavered for me yeah. like and that could yeah that continues to be the biggest strength of these original series films and it's the really the biggest strength of this movie and again it's but i but i i actually feel in a way like you know because i felt like the previous films did a good job at that and there were spatterings of it and then there were like they were focuses and refocuses about like how search for spock had more of a like a focus on spock and bones's relationship right. and yeah and some of kirk's and 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 then uh Rathacon was kirk and spock really and then and then there was some stuff in voyage home voyage home was more of like a, a fun adventure mm -hmm. whereas like I, I i just felt so engaged with the payoff of like now you're just seeing all of these guys uh in this crew just be friends Right. with each other and, and because i'm also engaged with the whole notion that like the enterprise crew is just like a bunch of like college students mm -hmm. so they're all kind of like grown children mm -hmm. so there was a level where i like seeing that because i know that it is often a criticism not even of trek movies but of just movies in general that people don't 
they don't like seeing characters being what they would call being portrayed as like dumb or like an idiot. Yeah. But I always love it when characters are kind of like, are kind of like, oh, like they're kind of being an idiot, but that doesn't mean like, they're probably still good at their job and they're a good friend, but they're, you know, they're doing like, they're doing childish things. Like, you know, you know, they're on shore leaf and like, you know, Sulu's like, well, we're, we're in a blizzard and Chekhov is like blowing into the, <laughs> into the communicate. Like that's like, I love that kind of stuff because it just, it yeah. makes me like these characters and it, like way more. And I think also, I mean, I, I, it's just something I've thought about too, is that uh, before we start getting into the kind of the more specifics of the movie, I wonder if subconsciously or consciously, the fact that this is like a movie which is just like, again, sort of the mission movie, right? That we've, we've talked about all these other movies. It's like, oh, they're like going against like, you know, they're breaking the rules and they're like not like actually on the Enterprise and they have to steal the Enterprise or they accidentally take the Enterprise. And this one is legitimately like, you know, that maybe the Enterprise is having issues, but they're called upon on this mission to be like, no, you guys are, you know, Kirk, you're an experienced captain, you're experienced crew. This is a tough mission. We're sending you out on this mission legitimately. And I mm. think that's also kind of actually refreshing because as much as I like the, the story of two and two through four, you know, and I, I do think that it's nice to just have sort of, okay, here's just a, you know, we're sending you on this mission to do this thing, you know, because you're the best. And it's nice to see that. And, and well, and then that also, like, I also loved, cyborg too i thought it's he was great, great. I... I thought the idea of that character was awesome and it was just a good change of pace that you know i guess it you know we didn't have like a really a villain in the yeah. last one and he's yeah. more of like an antagonist more than a villain but... right right for sure because that's another thing that um shatner has talked about in terms of the movie is that when he had the real act of love and the televangelist angle that zock slash cyborg character originally was a lot more villainous and when they came back after the writer's strike to kind of put their finishing touches, Shatner decided to make Cybok a lot more sympathetic. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think that that works. And I do think that Cybok, I think the performance is great by uh, Luck and Bill. Like it's yeah. fun because it really is. Oh, like, dude, the, fir the first scene that he's right. in yeah. is great. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fun. And I think he plays that character well. And I think it actually, uh, I want to go into it more in the movie, but I do think it really also kind of functions well as like an, an alternate interesting look at Vulcan and Vulcan culture. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's the more that like, again, I think that that character also is much, you know, that's, that's a character that like doesn't really get a lot of play in, in, in sort of the expanded Star Trek lore. But I think you could have some fun with like sort of the history of that character. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like, again, like I, I've really come to just enjoy these films. And I think that, you know, Star Trek five is among this where it's like, I would just rewatch all of these in a row because I kind of like them all to an extent, even like this one, which is still to just personally on my lowest. It's just the one, well, not the one I'm going to go to first. There is a lot to like in this movie. And I think we I want to discuss it. Uh, one of the things I do love that Shatner really did is that he really puts his stamp on it by doing something different that we have a cold open. You know, all these other Star Trek films, they start with just the big, like, the fanfare, the title, the opening credits over, you know, some some space. Maybe Star Trek Three had, like, you know, going through, like, the Spock thing and, and like, kind of, like, the like the recap. But, like, Shatner legitimately opens this in sort of just, like, you could have thought you were, like, walking into the wrong movie to an extent because it's just this cold open on this on Nimbus 3, this sort of, quote-unquote, paradise planet where Cybok is riding a horse um 
and like comes in this 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 was my first indication that i was probably gonna like the movie because i i love the way this opened up it's a great oh it is a great opening it's really good he just goes up to that you know that weird guy and just stares at him i love it pontificates yeah it's great sense of uh cybox ability to take away your pain um and that's how he kind of gains followers there's just a great kind of discussion just about like sort of finding the answer to, you know, the ultimate question, which of course is finding God, you know, we get Cybok's need for a starship and then it ends with Cybok taking off his little hood and the costuming is great too. I love sort of the, the knitted kind of hood and costume he has kind of really makes him feel like sort of a, a Messiah type character. It really kind of functions really well. And then he takes off the ear, that takes off the hood and reveals the ears. The the alien creature is like, you're a Vulcan. And then they start laughing together. And it's just like a nice little like, oh, what are we getting ourselves into? And then even with, with the opening credits, like, you know, normally all these things are again over space for almost the entire time, barring Star Trek three. But here it's like Shatner, you know, Goldsmith brings back his, you know, motion picture fanfare. We get the shots of the space, but then we're going all through, you know, Yosemite and El Capitan. And we see we see Kirk climbing up this mountain, freebasing it and and not, uh, you know, without any rope or anything like that. And it, it, it's just a super kind of different change of pace. And I, I, I was taken aback by just how much I was refreshed by it. It was really nice. Yeah, I mean, it, and then your intro, your your. We're like, and this is into like the the whole Yosemite Park, bit, right? So, right? so yeah. the, basically, because the, like the idea is the crew is on shore leave, the Enterprise is having some technical difficulties after sort of its initial runs, so Scotty is remaining on the Enterprise A, I should say the Enterprise A, uh, to like kind of fix all these issues, whereas um, the rest of the crew is just basically relaxing and having having some shore leave back on Earth, so. Um, Technically speaking, uh, even though it's not, it's not, they're technically in two different areas, but they're the, the triumvirate of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are in Yosemite, whereas Sulu and Chekhov are enjoying the Mount Rushmore area, even though it's not apparent in the movie. Uh, yeah. but they're enjoying themselves. So we see Kirk kind of climbing out Capitan uh, in Yosemite, and he's kind of, you know, struggling and he's enjoying the, the climb and the struggle of everything. And then Spock comes up and on like gravity boots and just kind of starts having a casual conversation with him while over in the distance, McCoy is like looking through binoculars, just kind of muttering to himself about like how crazy it is that Shatner, that uh, Kirk is doing this. And then like, I'm going so crazy. I might as well be talking to myself when he actually is talking to himself. And immediately again, it's like the comfortability of these characters together. Uh, I don't know, man, you're, 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 you're just giving me 10 out of 10 stuff. As yeah. you're as you're re reenacting this, I mean, it just the way it opened was like, I just loved it. I, I loved you getting back into the characters. Mm-hmm. You're seeing them in a in a slightly different environment, and you're basically just seeing them be buddies. Yes. Like what's not, and well, everybody yeah. doing a great job on it too. So right. it's like, what's not to love about it? Exactly, and just the like, I, you know, it's like just the little lines of just like, you know, Spock being up there in his, of his like hover boots. And he's like, 
Captain, I don't think you really realize the gravity of your situation. And we just get a shot of like how tall he is on the mountain. And Kirk's like, no, I think, I think gravity, like I, I'm very aware of the gravity Spock. And then they have the whole thing where um, Kirk falls, which again, a note that was at that time, the largest free fall in world history. Um, and they did it twice. Um, I think it was actually beaten by Goldeneye a couple of years later uh, when mm. they do the free fall off the depth dam. Uh, and then, you know, Spock saves him with the, you know, with the hover boots and that kind of the chase down. So that's kind of fun. And then, you know, because kind of skipping ahead a little bit, we get this great campfire scene and it's just, it really is just like these three characters and three threes actors together. You can basically put them on screen and it's entertaining. Like they are so comfortable with each other in terms of their chemistry and the writing is so comfortable in terms of the way these characters interact with each other. It's I, I find it hard not to enjoy this campfire scene because it's just so much of these three friends. Wait, no, but this is like the thing. It's like these, these three what, friends are just nothing, hanging out. But there's nothing wrong with it. Like this is there isn't there isn't this, is, this to me is like. I mean, even if you don't like the, I mean, the, here was one of these things. Like as I was watching this. I almost was assuming like, oh, this movie must be garbage from the rest of it. You know what I mean? Because yeah, it, like, yeah, yeah. if people don't like this, like this part is so good. The rest of the movie just must be complete, utter trash for people not to like it. Now, again, I don't feel that way. But bottom line is what I'm saying is that even if you do feel that way for some reason, like to me, this is such a clear, like, saving grace or standout of the film because mm -hmm. especially in the context of you have the four film you or you've had the you, you have all the films leading up to it at this point and you know they're all hanging out there's clearly been some payoff to the development between bones and spock at this point yeah like they feel more like actual buddy i mean there's several times in this film where even bones will come to the defense of spock in a way that he hasn't before mm -hmm. which i thought was very telling as well and, and there's still like, he still gets lines where he's like i liked him better before he died like, yeah that was awesome i thought that was so funny i was like dude so this whole scene like, they, like this whole bit of the film i was just i was laughing i was enjoying myself um the whole like you know uh and then there's just like all these like little bits where like you know, Spock like has like the little device that pops out a marshmallow, and he's like, "Oh, I'm, uh, you know, it's I'm about to roast a marshmallow because it's like you know custom for like <laughs> like just yeah. being Spock about it." And then they're like, and "He just calls them marshmallows for some reason." Yeah, and, and then he's like, and then and then they're like, "Oh, like oh," and I believe like you know the other tradition you're talking about is the sing along. And then you go, then you transfer over to Kirk, who's being very boy like. He's like, "I haven't, I haven't done a sing along since I was a boy." And then they, they're like, "What's what's that classic like, row 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 your boat?" Like, and then yeah. they, and then they get into that, and then and then you get into Spock like oh, no, I was contemplating the, the the meaning of the lyrics, the, yeah, the lyrics <laughs> like. Just and, 10 and again, out of 10 stuff. And then Bo yeah, Bones is just like, you're not supposed to think about the lyrics. The lyrics mean nothing. You're just supposed to sing them. It's a fun thing to do. I, I, I love, and I still love that, I love why I love their relationship is because I still love that he calls him like a green-blooded Vulcan mm -hmm. and things like, yeah, and like the thing like, I think I liked better 
like was it before i think he said before he died yeah before he died yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was like so that was that was really funny um yeah and then and then again this movie was just so funny to me because this is skipping ahead just a little bit but then like later like they're quoting like you know some they're quoting some literature yes and and then he's like and then like spock so, yeah, like, good, says but, what it is and then he's like oh he's like and mccoy's like are, are you sure about that no he, yeah because he's like oh yeah it's like and then yeah spock's like yeah it's one of the it's one of the classics i, it's like, <laughs> I, I am i know he's like i'm familiar with the classics doctor and then yeah. McCoy is and like, bones is like it's like how oh, come you don't know row 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 your boat <laughs> But they're and it's like you can just tell they're just friendly with each other. Um, so basically, like they're all on shore leave. Scotty, of course, is is filling around with the Enterprise A, and it's like, I, I this must have been built by a bunch of monkeys. And they're trying to fix things, and then eventually the red alert goes off because and they think it's an issue, but then it's like, no, sir, it's an actual red alert. Because we cut back to Cybok on this planet Nimbus three with paradise city. So the whole idea between behind the planet that he's on is it's supposed to be, it was intended to be this sort of neutral paradise, sort of like kind of nightclub planet to an extent where, you know, all factions could come together. There would be no weapons or anything like that. The, you know, the, the Federation of Klingons and the Robulans can hold, hold meetings on this planet without any sort of, uh, you know, issue of having, you know, wars or, or, or fisticuffs or anything like that. But it's become like a desolate area. It's basically like become like a desert wasteland. The locals have, even though weapons were banned, they've built their own weapons. The, the, the pool hall, there's like a pool hall and there's like, you know, like a video that's like, welcome to Paradise City. It's all kind of dilapidated. And we kind of have this meeting between a Federation officer, a Klingon officer and a Romulan the Romulan is new to the, the the place. The Federation officer is very cynical, and we learn that the Klingon officer basically was kicked off of the Klingon console and has, has become like a drunk and basically is at this meeting just in terms of like, well, he's got to do something because he's a legendary Klingon officer. So there's this kind of situation where these kind of folks are, are meeting, and Cybok takes his followers and takes sort of this 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 kind of club hostage in order to lure a starship there. Cause for whatever reason, we don't know at this point, he needs a starship. Yeah. One, one, one thing that the movie that I liked in the movie and, and the movie doesn't really get into it all that much, but I just love the, the notion of that. You kind of have this, you know, this peaceful, almost like neutral type area or whatever. Yeah. And you have all these like emissaries from different, you know, you know, you kind of have like the Klingon, and you have the Federation, and you have like it was a Romulan, right? That was the other. That was yeah, the, third. The, the last one, yes. But I just love, especially like in that one where they they go in and then they meet. Like she walks into the room with the Klingon and the and the Federation guy. Yeah, and there there's just kind of like this, you know, yeah, this is kind of like the like the peaceful play. Like this should be like a bigger deal, but it's basically just kind of like this like Moss Eisley, like these two officials just kind of look like, you know, low level bureaucrats who are just kind of like, you know, they're um, they're done with it. Like they're yeah, they're they're, 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 just, they're over it. They they're like working their nine to five and they're not taking it that seriously. So the movie doesn't get into it that much, but that that was a little piece of world building that I that I 
that I enjoyed. Yeah, especially as we're what we're leading into with the, the undiscovered country and and what's going on on the next generation where the Klingons eventually are part of the Federation. Um, but also, but again, it's like you write that, that there is kind of a nice little detail where it's like, especially like again, like we kind of talk about where there's a point where Shatner gets information on the hostages. And he sees that the Klingon officer was just like, yeah, he was a former high ranking military official, but it's basically like kicked to the curb and given this sort of assignment as sort of like, uh, you know, just to get him out of the way. And he's become like a drunken loser. And Shatner's like, you know, well, I hope that that never happens to me. Um, but eventually, yeah, Cybok comes and takes over this planet. And so the Federation calls on the Enterprise A and uh, Kirk and everybody to come get rid of their shore leave. And to, to save these hostages from from this kind of terrorist, um, which I thought that this was also well, first of all, the, the the officer that gives Kirk these orders is Harv Bennett making a cameo and also making a cameo in that sequence is uh, Shatner's daughter is the Yeoman who takes Shatner's coat at the beginning of the scene. And, and Shatner had said that this was a, his failed attempt at a joke because. The joke on the original series, like among the crew, is like the Yeo men, they never had anything to do. So Shatner had this whole pl- bit where he gives his daughter his coat and then there's no place to hang a jacket on the, the bridge. So this woman is just walking around with a jacket, not knowing where to place it. But he said he didn't direct it well, which you probably didn't even notice. Um, but no, I, 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 I know not in the intended way, but right. I know exactly like, what you're talking about. Right. It's just like he didn't direct it well enough to make it play. I did like the little joke where, um, like, that when Harv Bennett's uh, captain is like, uh, his like, uh, you know, his Federation officer is like, we're we're dressing a little casual today, Captain, and he just cut mm-hmm. the Shatner and he's like the the climb the mountain shirt and like yeah. with this big thing and he's like, you caught me on my way to the shower, um, and there's a great button at the end of that scene too when they get their orders, which is when like Kirk's in his chair, and Bones is just like, what's wrong, Kirk? And he's like. I miss my old chair. So, I mean, this is going to be kind of like a running theme, as I think you are saying it. But I think often sometimes we can be like, oh, there's this nice little moment when this happens. And there's this nice little moment when this happens. But, like, for me, like, those moments just personalize the film so much Mm -hmm. that these were the reasons that I liked the movie as much as I did. Because it made it so much about these people being very personable characters. Yeah. Like, really you true. know, so like it's like when we've said this a number of times, it's these little moments that make movies. Mm-hmm. We've talked we talked about it with again, Jack Ryan. We've talked about it with these star Trek films before. Like I talked about it extensively in wrath of Khan that I think the little moments of that movie really make it feel fulfilled. And again, I just think there's just a comfortability with these characters that, you do see this and it just feels so right and so good. And it's hard. I, again, it's just, for me, it's hard not to like it a lot because it's really capturing just the aesthetic of all these characters and their relationships. And for a cast and crew that I've really grown to love um, in these films and from the original series, it's just, you know, and, and you're, you're very right. The It's the little moments like this that really make the original series crew what it is and i'm sure in many ways once we get to the next generation it's the and for fans of the next generation it's those little moments among the next generation crew that make those characters come alive and Mm. i just feel that they that they really have an amazing cast of characters that they just know 
so well. And like when, when you have Nimoy and Shatner doing these characters and directing them and kind of guiding these characters, you could just tell that they are just so familiar with how these characters are and how they speak and how they move and how they interact with each other, that it makes everything just feel so right and so good. I don't know where this Ahura Scotty thing came from though. Don't know yeah. what that's about. Yeah. That's a little bit of a, uh, that one's a little weird. That, I don't, that, I, no, I don't get that one. That's a choice for sure. That's a choice. Yeah. Not, I mean, listen, I mean, if that's, you know, I, I, no problem with the direction. It was just kind of from a movie point of view. I was yeah. like, did I miss something? No, or it's, like, it's just, it, yeah. I, I think it's just, just trying to play it off as there's just kind of, you know, friends and almost like that they have these two kind of in many ways, like even though that, you know, Kirk, uh, Kirk is very, you know, thankful for everybody. They kind of have these two sort of thankless jobs of the communicator and the engineer where they just are, are working as hard as everybody else. And I think, yeah, but the problem, but the problem is it's like, I couldn't tell, and this may be a, a an error of direct, an error, error of directing where I, it was never, it just wasn't clear enough whether it was like a friendship thing or a romance thing. Yeah, no, I agree. It, was ne- it, it wasn't, it, I think it just, they didn't split the difference between it enough yeah. to make it like, yeah, it was just, I don't know. It was to the point where I, I couldn't get a grasp on like what that relationship was. And it mm-hmm. was just kind of bizarre. Yeah. And it, and it really like, doesn't again, play too much in the movie. And then there's like, there's a bit about it once like Uhura is like on Cybox side later there's like a little bit that plays, which is still kind of weird. I feel like that is a thing where like, I I know that's a a larger criticism of this movie too. And I can kind of see it where there's a lot of kind of things where a lot of big elements of the movie that maybe don't get as much, as much play in terms of the plot, like big and small. Like I think that people, you know, would think that there's all the kind of technical difficulties with the enterprise, which definitely does come into play, but also kind of disappears partly through the movie. There's some of this stuff with, with, with Uhura and Scotty that kind of disappears for part of the movie. And I feel like that's like kind of a thing that I've always heard about this movie too, is just just like kind of some of these elements kind of come in and out as convenience. Uh, uh, I didn't feel that way about the enterprise. I mean, yeah. just because it, no, it wasn't I, I, like a huge thing. Right. I think that yeah, they, I was fine with that. I, I, here's the thing. I think that, Again, it's one of the things when you actually watch the movie, I think they actually play that pretty well into sort of as much as it's needed to be. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think you needed a whole movie of like the issues with the Enterprise, but I think that the action sequences and the issues that come up because of it are fairly interesting and they, they use them effectively well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then we also have kind of, I should mention too, so they're on this way to Nimbus 3. We also have this subplot where, you know, uh, they were kind of aware that like, okay, because a Klingon officer has been, uh, you know, taken hostage that the Klingons will also be on their way over there. And so we kind of had this subplot of these Klingons being, you know, on their way and and kind of knowing that Kirk's going to be there and, and kind of like this kind of mission of just like, well, we're going to take down Kirk because we hate, we hate Kirk and Kirk hates us. So this kind of subplot that kind of weaves that kind of comes in and out of the movie as well. Um, so they eventually make it to Nimbus three and they need a plot to save these hostages. So this is where uh, Kirk and Spock uh, and McCoy as well. And eventually Uhura make their way down to the planet. Whereas Chekhov 
pretends to be the captain of the Enterprise to negotiate with Cybok to distract him. This is, of course, where we get the infamous, again, Uhura dance scene, which is uh, particularly a favorite of her, of uh, Nichelle Nichols that I mentioned. It. She was very oh, happy to good. do this. I'm glad she, had, I'm, I'm glad she liked uh, it. She was very eager to do this. And again, something else for her to do when, and of course, she gets, uh, I've always wanted to perform for a captive audience. Like, you can just tell she likes saying that line. But eventually they... No, I mean, listen, I, I don't know... That was one of those moments where I was getting shaky. I didn't know if that was working for me. Um, and then the film kind of course corrected for myself. But right. that that wasn't that was also another Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan. That was like maybe my like one of my criticisms. I, I just wasn't a huge fan of the horror stuff mm-hmm. in this film, but Yeah. That's just me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just like we get to yeah, it's like it's a fun scene, but it's it does kind of like we're trying to get to the big fight on at the at the planet at the at the nightclub area where they're trying to rescue these hostages and eventually just the the cybox followers are just an overwhelming number of people well and we and we also should mention that at this point we are made we were made privy to maybe what cybox's deal was is that he was like a oh right 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 yeah so basically Spock knew who he was so, in a great line with like you look like you've seen a ghost Spock. perhaps i have sir <laughs> yes yes i forgot about this so on their way they there's also like this this uh new enterprise a has this captain's lounge with like an old school like like a ship steering wheel in it yeah that that struck me as like a shatner thing yeah for some reason yeah um but uh yeah so they show footage of like, here's the terrorist that took these people hostage. And Spock recognizes this person as a, a former colleague and, 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 and classmate of his on Vulcan. And, you know, Spock explains that Cybok was sort of a Vulcan prodigy, was a very smart person who really took in Vulcan teachings at first and was like destined to be among the great Vulcan scholars. But Cybok was eventually banished from Vulcan because he rejected the teachings of logic. And, you know, he was, as Spock put it, he was a revolutionary. He believed that, you know, emotion was the key to all life, not logic. And of course, McCoy is very pleased by this. Imagine that, a passionate Vulcan. Uh, but if, essentially that Cybok had tried to recruit Spock as his cause and, and, eventually left Vulcan to pursue sort of this greater answer. And so this is kind of where Cybok has come from, that he is this kind of former Vulcan revolutionary who is more in tune with his feelings and kind of the, the, the as Spock put it, the animalistic instincts of our ancestors as opposed mm-hmm. to the logical side of Vulcan. Uh, but eventually, yeah, so they kind of storm the city but are overwhelmed by Cybok's forces. Cybok reveals that, like, again, all he wants is a starship. And the Cybok has this thing that we kind of get at this point because you see that the hostages are very much on Cybok's side, that he has this ability to take away your pain. And by taking away your pain, you basically become sort of a uh, just a cult follower of this guy that you just basically like, or like, he is the answer. He is the greatest person. Sort of, there's this kind of almost like a hypnotism type of thing that doesn't really go that far, but there's this kind of like, Oh, we're all going to follow it because he took away our pain and we believe mm-hmm. in this man. So there's kind of this, again, this kind of Messiah sort of Christ sort of element to his, his miracle worker element to him. 
And there, and and what I did like about the character is that even the way that it was played, it, it was really clear that, like, you kind of bought that it wasn't like because in a lot of movies it's like it's not mind control. Like he's kind of like doing the villain thing. I was like, I'm not mind controlling people. Like you know what I mean? Right, it's just yeah. like I'm just like you know I'm just showing them their better selves using my mind control. But like up until that point, you do like at least I bought that he that this was a guy who you know had his mission but wasn't that nefarious no i think i think that is a key to cyborg is that they don't make him villainous because it would have been very interesting like easy to make him the villainous side and just make him like the, the evil televangelist who's doing this for his own gain but one of the one of the things that does make cyborg like an interesting star trek character is he his his genuine goal is to find god like that's just like and he he believes that it will be an enlightenment to not just himself, but to the, the wider universe. And it's his focus that we're going to find, you know, he needs a starship because he needs to cross the great barrier because the planet of Shakari, which again, just amuses me that it's just Sean Connery. It's, it's really funny that that's the case, but Shakari is seemingly this kind of destiny place where, where Cybok will find his answers and prove that his, his journey, his beliefs, his 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 whole self identity is sort of will be confirmed on this planet. Yeah, and then you know, and again, this may be skipping ahead to this part, but since we're kind of on the topic of Cybok, I mean, it, it is eventually kind of revealed like what, like there, they pull back the curtain on like what this whole quote unquote mind control thing and what he's doing with people because i think ultimately because he's a vulcan it's kind of like his version of a mind meld right yes. like yeah essentially so the way that i've kind of read it it's not explicitly stated in the movie but it is kind of like his version of a mind meld but because his mind meld is so much focused on feeling rather than logical information mm-hmm. you know because when whenever spock does it you know he does feel that person's emotions like that's a part of the vulcan mind meld but Spock does it implicitly to get information. Right, to, right. To understand. So, like, you know, we talked about a lot the Horda from the original series. Yes, like, he's like, you know, he's like pain and suffering. But then he comes off of it. He's like, oh, this, this creature is dying. We've been betraying her children. You know, we've been killing her children, yada, yada, yada. And, of course, like the whale in the last movie, he's like, they're not the hell you're whales. Like, he's very happy to see you. Like, he, he feels those emotions. But Cybox's side of the mind meld, is very much like he's allowing you to kind of bring up these feelings and, and, and sort of you are kind of the focus of the mind meld. You are the one that's kind of, you know, going through your emotions and your feelings. Yeah. Cause his, cause his whole deal is basically he's, he's showing, he's showing you or making you relive like what is considered in your life, like the darkest Right. point in your life mm-hmm. and, and via that some way is like kind of like mentally making you at peace for, with that and then freeing you of like the pain that you would experience from like the memories that, of that i will go because and because and, and and just just so i can just to piggyback off of that and in a way that gets into like the whole psychology of the character that, you know, he's seeking like a life where like you can be free of like these 
things that plague you emotionally and and uh and mentally because it is it, it it's funny because it is kind of like a perverse not a perverse but like an alternate way of like how spock looks at the world where it's like well you just devoid yourself of emotion and everything right. whereas like his way is more of just kind of like an idealistic like you know it, like you know uh tackle this in your in your memory head on and then you know through my mind meld you'll just be free of it and wouldn't it be best if we found like a being that could just basically embody what i'm doing for everybody and mm -hmm. all that I, I just kind of thought that that was like an interesting direction to go in yeah we'll get to that I, I, there's a couple of things about that that when we really see it later that i want to get to when we get there but the main thing that's happening here is the, i actually like this action sequence quite a bit too where eventually um cyborg wins in this kind of struggle and their cyborg is gonna he's like i'm i'm taking the enterprise i'm taking this federation ship for my own purposes but they're bringing you know everybody back that you know they're bringing spock and 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 kirk and mccoy up there but that's when the klingon ship arrives and because of the issues with the enterprise the enterprise can't really is not in a position to really truly defend itself so Shat, uh kirk gets to convince Cybox it's like let me do this my way we need to you know you're not going to get your ship if you let those Klingons get there and so I again I like I always like when they allow Kirk or especially because Kirk himself is allowing Kirk to be kind of this this ingenuity character of just like finding some sort of weird alternate way of like solving the situation because that's some of the most fun stuff of the original series and that's kind of what makes Wrath of Khan so much fun as well um, and even like when he realizes that, yeah, yeah, we have to do the time travel stuff, but like, so the whole thing where it's like, you know, we basically can't be tractor beamed in, we can't be transported in because the transporters on the Fritz. So like, we basically have to like aim this shuttlecraft directly at like the entry point, you know, and we have to like get it perfectly. And there's like all this other stuff of him, like, well, we have to trick the Klingons and thinking we're doing this so that there, there's just always fun to see Kirk kind of come up with sort of the alternate version of something and to be like that surprising the, the showcase why he's such a good captain mm -hmm. yeah definitely um but so then we get to they they succeed they kind of you know brush off the klingons they get back into the ship spot you know there's a big crash so everybody's kind of strewn about spock gets a gun a phaser and has a chance to shoot cybok but doesn't um, which, you know, incenses Kirk. And they're eventually, Kirk, McCoy, and Spock are eventually thrown into the brig while Cybok goes to basically sort of ease the pain of everybody else on the ship to basically truly take it over. Um, at which point we learn that, um, uh, you know, Kirk, like, I'll, again, there's just kind of this big argument where you know it's like you you betrayed us, and it's like I've and and Spock's like most importantly I've betrayed you, and I'm I'm sure you'll never forgive me for it. And then you know eventually we learn that uh, Cybok is technically Spock's half brother or kind of stepbrother in a way, which I like that line too, where it's like, no, I, you don't understand, he's my brother, and like Kirk's like. I understand he's a Vulcan, but that doesn't mean like, no, like right, legitimately right. like my brother. He's also a son of Sarek, which is another thing that's very controversial among Trek fans. Um, 
uh, other books explain it in a very nice way. And essentially to an extent, it adds a little bit of kind of drama to the movie. I also don't feel like it's a hundred percent necessary. No. And I mean, this is one of those little things where I would own up to kind of what my criticisms would be. There would be like choices like that, that like, like I would even find like, why is it like, why make it the brother thing? If you're going to undercut it with, well, he's not actually like, you know, his brother traditionally, it's like a half brother thing, but then you're right. Then you're like, Oh, so like that opens up that whole can of worms. Why not just really make it like, it was like, like another Vulcan that he knew, you know what right, I mean? Yeah. It like the, it's just like, because the brother thing is just like, it's really just there to explain why Spock doesn't shoot him. And he really could have just had it where it's like, Spock just doesn't get the chance. And it's really just like, you know, their friendship, like maybe again, they were friends and they were both on logic. And then he went off on this different direction. Like, I think you could have still played it where it's still heavy for Spock, but because the brother thing really doesn't play into anything else in the movie other than that moment. Right. It's just basically like, kind of like a, it's just sort of a thing to be like, oh my God, Spock has a brother. And it's kind of like right. that, yeah. that connects. I, so. I, I would agree with that. But what the one thing I did want to say about this scene, though, which is more important to me, was that just the, the way in which all the character dynamics are played, because this is the big, this could be that moment in the movie where they have a falling out. Because you know I'm very critical of the fall, falling outs in movies. I often feel like that they're contrived mm-hmm. only for the sake of them getting back together. And right. it's also like one of those things where at that point, the character should be more mature enough to get through it. What I loved about this was that, yeah, Kirk is pissed at him for this reason, but everybody in this scenario is talking to each other and treating each other like they're all brothers Mm -hmm. like you know like they're like you know no no pun intended but it's like like even the way in which kirk is scolding him it's more of like spock come on what are you doing like it's just like you know you know they they don't try to force that the like like oh how dare you like this is like how could you like they don't i'm not i'm not talking to you anymore right right? yeah so and i love like you even have bones coming to his defense a little bit and like, so I, I just loved how all of that was and, played. And it's like, you know, and, and, and Spock admits his, it was a mistake. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, and then Kirk understands that like legitimately like, oh, if it's like, it's technically your true blood. Like, I, I understand What was the that. thing where he's like, I should knock you to the floor or something? I should not, Spock's... I should like, it's like, I should knock you on your ass. And, and Spock's <laughs> so... like, if that would help. Yeah, <laughs> that was 10 out of 10. Loved it. And that then I like, great. I like, like. And then at one point, Bones is like, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, Spock. You never cease to surprise me. And then Spock's like, myself as well. Like, he's basically <laughs> like, I always surprise myself, too. They're stuck in the brig. Um, Cybok has essentially, you know, controlled most everybody on the ship. Um, you know, Uhura's all in his, like, grasp. And Sulu's all in his grasp. And all the other kind of extras are in his grasp. You know, Chekhov's about to be there. But the one person that isn't there yet is Scotty, who we've seen witness this, which leads to another great sequence uh, where they, they're in the brig and they're trying to figure out like what, what to do, how they're going to get out of here, how they're going to save the ship. Like what, it's kind of, again, like sort of this thing where it's like they've been in this sort of situation before, both on the original series and through these movies. It's like they're going to get out somehow. They just got to figure out how. And it's like, oh, and, and then the whole thing is like, well, why don't we just break out? It's like, 
no, the and Spock's like, no, um, like, uh, this is a brand new brig. It's like an impenetrable fortress. Well, how do you know that? It, uh, you know, it's been heavily tested. And then, like, what's the line? It's like Kirk's Kirk, like Kirk says, like, it's like, and was the you know was the person uh, who couldn't escape? Was he? Did he have pointy ears and made everybody's life difficult or something to that yeah. degree? And then it's funny because if you read this line online, like the line that he says, he's like, well, he did have pointy ears, yeah. <laughs> like that. But it's this nice moment where, because the way Kirk says it is more of like, like he loves this guy. Like none of that is compromised. And And then Spock goes over, extends his hand and Kirk welcomes it and he gets up. And then Spock essentially makes a, Spock makes a joke. Right. He's he's like, he did that point of ears. Yeah. And it's like, basically, but it's like, again, it's like, again, how these characters are familiar and how you know these characters. Cause it's Kirk being like, oh like, oh, of course it was you who did this. And of course you would make this an impenetrable fortress. And then Spock like understands. It's like, well, yeah, of course it was me. But like, you know, I understand. But as they're trying to figure it out, they start hearing tapping on the wall. And they're all very confused at first. And then they're like, wait a minute. That's that old, that's that old, uh, that old communication technique, Morse code. Like, oh, my Morse code is a little bit rusty. And then they all start spelling it out together where they're like, S, that's a T, A and D, B, A C K. Stand back, and then on they all pause, look at each other simultaneously. Stand back, and then the wall explodes, and it's Scotty saving the day and being like, "Come on, lads! Like, get out of here!" It's that's amazing sequence. I love yeah, that, whole that whole that's scene. That whole scene. Um, so there's a the whole thing. They eventually escape. The gravity boots come back. They're like basically. Like, oh, you also there, there's also a gag where Scotty runs into a in, into a wall. Oh yes, yes. No, because he he runs into like a bar in the ceiling because he's like like trust me, sir. I know this ship like the back of my hand, and he immediately like I, okay. turns around and hits himself. Here's my thing. I get what they're going for because the idea is like like he's always complaining about like oh this like new ship like what do they do with it they like changed all this stuff. So I think that would have been funnier if that was more of a running gag throughout, throughout the, the film. Yeah. Because I was like, cause at first I was like, okay, that was kind of, even for me, that was a little silly. Right. But then I remembered that it was because he doesn't know the ship, this ship, like the back of his hand yeah. because they rebuilt it. So I, that was one of those things where I like, maybe if they kind of had padded out that as a joke throughout the whole thing, I think that would have landed better. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I would agree. Because it's basically right at the beginning when he's, like, having issues with the ship and, and then, like, that point. And it's really a means to get, like, Scotty knocked out. So, again, they can do this weird thing with Uhura where she's, like, all, like, kind of, like, hypnotized. Like, not hypnotized, but, like, you know, in, in Cybok's, like, kind of, like, world. And so he's, like, knocked out. And then she's, like, it's going to be okay, Scotty. Like, join us, like, essentially. Well, and then it, it, well, it should also be noted that this point in the film – Technically, it's not made clear if it is like a mind control thing, right? Yeah, like everybody just assumes that's what's going on, right? That it's basically like they're all just basically drinking the Kool Aid, as it were, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but there, yeah. Then there's the escape sequence where the gravity boots come back and they're kind of going up to down the shaft, and um, there's some fun banter here too, where they're all like hanging out with each other. It's it's very nice. 
Yeah, uh, no, like that, that was good. Yeah, the, no, the, the bit with the boots uh, is pretty fun. And they go all the way up to the top where they're trying to escape yeah. and they go too high, that sort of thing. Yeah, and then and then what and then what happens and then they and then they somehow they get into like the grasp of Cybok again. Yeah, basically just like the the boots just kind of get caught. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, um, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank on like exactly how the scenes yeah. connect with each other. They they basically like uh, um, you know. Oh, I no, I remember now. I remember now. So basically, they go to the observation lounge. And try to make that distress call. Yes, to, they they yes. try to they try to make that distress call to to Starfleet, but it turns out it's being intercepted great, by. Great twist! They, I thought that was awesome. Yeah, so it's being intercepted by the Klingons again, and so now the Klingons know like but, what, but what's it, going on. But the twist was is that they you know they start talking to who they think is just some woman on the other line from the the Federation. Yeah, and then what it turns out is that it's one of the enemy Klingon, the female Klingons from the enemy Klingon ship that's kind of like team rocketing them and following them around. Mm -hmm. And like, I just thought that was like a neat, that was a neat little thing for a couple reasons. One, I actually, it did get me. Yeah. Cause I, I thought like, oh, there's probably something to this, but I thought like maybe it was like somebody else on the Federate, on the ship that's like, you know, trying to, that's playing tricks on them. But the fact that it's like, oh no, it's like it's it's the Klingon late like one of the Klingons knows like perfect English. And then there's kind of like a level of like world building where it makes that was one of those first little things that made the Klingons way more fleshed out in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Because even though, yes, they are still kind of like taking up the role of like, well, we have to kill Kirk because we're Klingons and, you know, it'll be an honorable death even if we die doing it. There is a lot of that. But for some reason, for me, knowing that like these are these are fleshed out people, like there's no reason that one of them just couldn't learn no perfect English for their job. Right. So yeah. I, I just like that detail. I mean, that, and, that, and that it's again, it's smile. like. The, the original parallel is like the Russians versus the U.S. That's like the original parallel for the Klingons. And I think it just makes sense even from a real world perspective and from a in universe perspective. Like you should have someone who knows like how to speak the other person's, you know, the, the enemy's language because mm-hmm. it can, can become helpful. So they're in the lounge with the with the steering wheel and they're like trying to do this distract all. And then basically Cybox like, listen, like, guys, this. Like, just listen to me. Like, he's like at this point, Cybox, like, listen to me. Like, I'm gonna, I have this planet, like, I have this vision. And, you know, people said it's impossible to find God, but then, you know, one of your people broke the sound barrier and you guys created the warp drive and, and all that sort of stuff. Like, basically, throughout human history, everybody's been told it's impossible. And now, like, throughout all history of all creatures, that I'm going to achieve the impossible and that sort of thing. Um, which I also found funny just in retrospect because he at one point he says your people used to think the earth was round or, <laughs> your people used to think the earth was flat and then Christopher Columbus proved it round which first of all not necessarily true like but the other thing is like yes it would be great if everybody did really believe the world was round like that <laughs> that uh, but maybe by that year, we kind of we we're all finally back on the same page about that. <laughs> Anyways, but this is where um, we start um, getting into what we were talking about earlier with 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 Cybox true kind of 
potential is he kind of is like I he's not mind controlling people. He essentially yeah frees their mind of all pain and makes them you know very just happy and they're happy to go along with him and everything like that. You know, and like he frees them of all pain, and he starts to demonstrate this to the our, our friends here, uh, starting with McCoy. And first of all, I think this whole sequence incredibly well directed by by Shatner um visually and how everything kind of comes because the whole thing is like again we reveal that Cybok is like bringing these people to their moments of deepest pain so for McCoy it's when basically he took his father off life support uh because his father had sort of this incurable disease and so just the way that like the transition is when like Cybok is you know, going into with McCoy's mind and you see kind of the cityscape pop up and his dad's bed in the background. And then like, you know, Cybok is basically treating him like, like he's a therapy patient. It's like, no, like release it. Tell me, what were you feeling? How was it going about? Like yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, their whole thing, their big like kind of discussion and DeForest Kelly is acting the hell out of this sequence where it's basically like, you know, he's a doctor. He understands like he didn't want his dad to suffer it was a hard decision. And then the real pain about it was that like really like a month or two later, they had found a cure for the disease that his father had. So like, it was kind of this debate of like, you did the right thing of easing his pain, but you could have saved him if you waited. And, and there's just this whole quarter of the way that Shatner brings this together visually. And I thought this was also a really neat way to kind of really portray like another side of a mind meld because we always see the mind meld just from the outside because we're really just seeing Spock do it from the logical perspective. Yes. He's feeling this other creature's emotions or this other being's emotions, but we're seeing just from him and like what he's doing. Whereas this, we're actually kind of seeing them together in the mind. We're seeing them together in, 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 in McCoy's mind and, and dealing with this whole issue. Uh, and then also we get Spock does the same thing and Spock kind of relives the fact that at the beginning of his life, you know, Sar- uh, Sarek, you know, he relives his birth and that Sarek basically calls him like, like ugly because he's like, he has too much human in him and sort of that element of like always being, you know, being looked at down by his father for being too human and being looked at as that way and trying to find himself in that means. It's a great, great bit of these kind of character building um, for these characters that we've known for such a long time. It also leads to a great uh, Shatner. Like, oh, Shatnerism, speech. yes. A Shatnerism, it's like... Which I, I thought was quite good. Oh, I, like, no, it's... it's especially it's one, towards the... It's the best like, part. It's one of the I best... Need, I need my pain! Like, I just, I, that was like, I was like, oh man. That, I don't, was, I don't, yeah, it's great. like, I don't want to lose my pain. I need my pain. It's a very yeah. Shatner performance. And I also like how this turned out because now McCoy is sort of kind of on board with all this, but it's Spock that is the first to reject Cybok because um, Spock is basically like, I'm at peace with my pain and I've made peace with my father. And I've, you know, it's like, I, choose to I, I like my pain you know he, he's on Shatner's side because Kirk says pain is what makes me who I am mm-hmm. and and Spock's on that side it's like I have gone on this life's journey essentially because of that pain and I wouldn't be here without that pain that's essentially kind of in not so many words like what Spock's going with 
And then eventually McCoy like realizes that, no, that they're, those are right. And I'm sticking with my friends. Yeah. The, the one unfortunate thing about that though, is that it, then it makes the rest of the enterprise crew just look like idiots. <laughs> yeah, that is true. That is true. That was like the only thing I kind of thought about, but no, but I, I, I liked all of that. And I kind of had mentioned earlier about like, it gets into the psychology of, of, of Cybok and like what his whole thing is. So yeah, no, I was, a I, I enjoyed all of that. Yeah, for sure. But, but basically this is, this essentially like, again, leads up to the fact that they are going to go through the great barrier, which again is another thing where it's like, oh, there's this great barrier around this planet. And it's like, kind of like, oh, we got to get through it. And it's not really too much of an obstacle, but it's still there. Um, and, and basically they're getting to Shakari. And there's also this nice little talk with, with Cybok and Kirk, where basically it's like Cybok's like, either I'm, I'm going to be proven right or I'm going to be proven crazy. Like, I know that. Like at one, mm-hmm. at one point or another, I'm either right about this or I'm crazy and I'm pretty confident that I'm right, but I'm also not ruling out that I'm crazy. And Kirk's like, fair enough. Like he's basically like, you know, they're kind of having this thing where Kirk still doesn't truly believe that this is, you know, we're going to find God and we're going to find like the, the creator. We're going to find the, the answer to all the universe here. But Cybok is like, you'll see, you'll see that, that my truth, my vision will, will become real. Um, and then we arrive on uh sakari uh shakari uh and they they go through this planet there's sort of the, the moment where you know cyborg like just calls out like let us in we're here you're great your greatness but eventually they, they continue on to kind of a cave into the planet and we apparently meet god and the, the, i mean very clearly Without a doubt. Yeah, sorry. I, I mean, I have thoughts. I, I, I didn't want to interrupt. I really, it's were... just like, it's it's the film's most famous scene. It's the quote. It's it's when they meet God. It's kind of, a, it's um, the David Murdoch face in the blue light. And he's kind of acting all godly. And Awesome. Cyber... Awesome voice. Yes. I thought the voice was great. I, I think that it worked out very well that he was moved from the Klingon role to that. Um, the, mm-hmm. the George Murdoch character, not David Murdoch, George Murdoch. Um, you know, who who's had some legendary roles in of himself, but the, the voice is so very, yeah, godly. Um, and very much like and the visage, very kind of like and this is kind of the point, what we imagine God to be. Mm-hmm. Um Cybok is enthralled by his truth becoming the, you know, he's like, This is this is what my vision was. And he's like, you know, um, and then you know, God starts asking some weird questions like how did you get here on a starship could this starship take me and my message throughout the universe of course it will be your chariot and immediately red flags go up for kirk and we get the line he's he interrupts this big thing he's like excuse me pardon me a moment uh i do have a question here what does god need with a starship you you know in many ways you know i think one of the reasons i did dig this movie is because it just reminded me of like a proto Guardians of the Galaxy mm. in, in some ways. Because like even down to like you know in Guardians of the Galaxy two, like you know there's just kind of like that C plot of like 
people that they were like enemies with as like the golden sovereign people and then they come in at the third act and they ruin everything and that kind of happens in this movie too yeah it's like not the, that's not that's not wrong so it, it's like so and then the fact that like you know there's this like bigger thing going on and the character is like well no no, no wait wait a minute that what that doesn't make sense what do you who are you what are you talking about yeah explain yourself and here's the thing what I like about it. I, I kind of gener- gen- generally like how all this plays out, just kind mm-hmm. of from like a pared down version of it. It is one of those things where up to scrutiny, it very much feels like that they needed a new ending for the movie and they didn't have enough time to think it through all the way. I'll acknowledge that because then there is a lot, because ultimately it's not God. It's just like a space entity. Right. It's basically, well, first of all, I do want to mention the line where, where Bones comes in and is like, what are you doing? You don't just ask the Almighty for his ID. Yeah, yeah. Um, but basically- 10 yeah, out of 10. Loved yeah. it. Uh, so basically, it's just like, it's essentially some like evil being that's been trapped on this planet. It's essentially a prison planet for him. And he sent off this message- to Cybok because he knew Cybok was susceptible that like he needs a starship to get off to cause havoc throughout the universe, which doing research, by the way, I did find this out. So side, side tangent, the Star Trek novels are basically always non-canon. They're basically like anything that happens in the movies and the shows canon, the novels, we just kind of like are having fun. I did like this one explanation for this creature or this god thing that one of the novels has where he was like an enemy of if you're familiar with the next generation the the q continuum they were like mm-hmm. enemies because they were both very powerful creatures and that this specific <laughs> the star trek novel that i was reading about this specific god creature killed the dinosaurs and that's what got the Q continuum on him. And he's like, you just genocided these like these lizards. Like, come on, man. And there's all they trapped him on this planet. Just thought that was a funny detail. But that's essentially, funny. that's essentially, but yes, essentially, he's kind of like this evil entity. He starts shooting lightning beams at the crew. Cybok is very like, what the hell's going on? And and the guy's like, the guy can't help himself. He's like, yeah, like you got played. Like, look, I can look like you. Was this your vision? This is what you saw, right? Like I I I played you for a fool, and you're gonna get me off this damn planet. Right. And so right. Cybok eventually is like, like he basically realizes like this is all my fault. I'm gonna make this right. He says goodbye to Spock, in and basically is like you know he's like, I see you have a lot of pain. Let me ease it. And he jumps in, and it really like it gives him a moment to kind of escape. But they're being chased, and this is where the the originally yeah the the god creature. The entity was going to raise up these big rock monsters that were going to chase them, and Kirk was going to have the big fight. Obviously, it didn't happen. So basically, it's just like they kind of escape, and the god creature is trying to like follow them off the planet. And yeah, yeah. and then um, so basically, they kind of work to uh, you know basically stop this thing from escaping. They sort of. Um, uh, You know, they basically just like come back up. The Klingons are there now to basically attack Kirk and everything's just going to hell for him. But eventually things work out. 
That's basically like the best way to describe it. It's like I, no, no, no. You're you're skipping over some good moments here because there is, you know, so they're easily able to go, and then they're like, okay, well, the beam can only is, is like kind of at like half power, so we can only beam up at most two at a time. So Kirk's like beam Scotty, not Scotty, uh, Bones and Spock up first, and mm-hmm. then they do that, and they're like, all right, and then they go back for him, and then the Klingons attack mm-hmm. um, them. And so that becomes an issue. And um, then there's this really fun moment where Spock goes up to that other Klingon general. Yeah, the, the guy, the, again, the former council member who was like just become like a, an alcoholic. Right. And he's like, well, you're technically his superior, so you should talk him down. And then this guy's like, oh, no, I'm like an old man and a fool or whatever. And I forget like Spock's life, but Spock, Spock basically is just like, no you will try <laughs> it was just it was just such like a like it was like a nice spock moment that spock was like taking on that like what i loved about it was that spock was having a kirk moment mm-hmm. for somebody like that just felt like something kirk it basically would be it was doing. a yeah he was inspiring this guy to be like you gotta reg-, like he's like you will try you will regain your former glory and then the right. guy reconsiders and and again broken record leonard nimoy is phenomenal because he plays he 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 plays the Vulcan thing very little emotion very straight but all of those character arcs just play so much like he's able to deliver like that type of moment that event that effectively he's grown to the point of like having a human Kirk like inspirational moment mm-hmm. but still plays it as Spock excellent 10 out of 10 it's great uh, yeah, and there's there's never enough praise for Nimoy. It's just mm-hmm. not. There's not. He's he's so good as Spock. I mean, I think all these char- I, all these actors at this point like are so good at their characters. And I think like like Nimoy as Spock is so like stands out because of what a great character and just a uh, performance that Spock is in general. But like, yeah, I mean, just like again, it's just like you know, Shatner is as Kirk and Bones. Uh, you know, DeForest Pitali playing Bones. Everybody's just on the top. You know, all, just they just know these characters and just play it so well. But if, yeah, so basically, like you know, Kirk's still trying to kind of you know survive. He gets beamed up by the Klingon ship, but is surprised to find the general there. And then the the captain of the Klingon ship is like, "I did not have permission to to hunt you down. I am sorry. I, I have betrayed my people." Blah blah blah. And then of course the Klingon, uh, you know you know, the Klingon, like, legendary Klingon, um, like, officers, like, and now meet our new gunner, and the chair whips around, and it's Spock. Mm-hmm. And he's basically, like, temporarily negotiated some peace. They bring Kirk off the planet, and, you know, everybody's saved. They're, they have escaped this entity. There is a big party in the lounge of the uh, Enterprise that basically is a temporary peace between the Klingons and the Federation that they can celebrate their time together. In which case we get like kind of the weird like Klingons are so weird, but also the Federation is so weird to Klingons. They're they're all weird to each other, which is gonna basically be the theme of the next movie. Um, to I, which- I, I and I also love. Sorry if you mentioned it, but like him going to give the hug. Yes. Yeah. It's like it's Captain, not not in front of the Klingons. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they're gonna yeah. It's like it's like not, not in front of the Klingons. Ten out of ten. It's great. 
It's my new catchphrase. Uh, and so then they're yeah they're having this sort of party and they're having this sort of discussion about like whether God is actually out there or not. Um, and at that point, we kind of they get to go back to shore leave. Yeah. Um, and it ends with them at a campfire again, singing "Row, Row, Row Your Boat." I do. I before we that like yeah that that's great. I did forget that during that scene where they're discussing God and like like you know apologizing that that Spock lost a brother and it is another really nice oh oh that scene yeah that's that was the scene where I had to be honest I was like I had such a good time with this movie because their moment at the end there where it's like oh you know God's in here and like you know and then the whole like brother talk like there was like I got a little like that got me in the field. right because because they basically are like Spock. It's like sorry to lose a brother, and it's like and then Kirk is basically like I I lost a brother once, and and I, I did a lot to like you know it's basically like he's basically implying that Spock is his brother. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's great. I I thought that was excellent. I, I like I don't know, man. I enjoyed this movie. I don't know what to tell you. Right, because he because he says, um. I lost a brother once and I was lucky enough to get that brother back. Mm-hmm. And that was, it's Kirk uh, and Spock. And yes, at the end, they're back at the campfire roasting them marshmallows and Spock finally joins in on the row, row, row your boat. And we, we had to credits. Yeah. It's definitely like, I don't again, know what to, yeah, I don't know. It's a movie. That, it's a movie that I think is just people are way too harsh on. Um, and I think that I, I don't know, like, I'm very happy you liked it. And you know what? I'm sure if you told William Shatner that you liked it, he would be ecstatic. Um, I genuinely, and I mean, we'll talk about six next time. I genuinely really like all these original series movies. Like, I don't think there's really like one that I don't like at least some part of it, you know? And it's still like, like, again, like I just have such an affection for two, three, and four. And my just kind of, incessant obsession with one that this still kind of ranks lower but again it's like it's kind of always been the issue of ranking things it's like when you have to rank everything one has to be at the bottom and sometimes that sucks because a movie like this where it's like yes it may not be my favorite i still think some of the plot stuff and i still think like in the middle kind of some of the stuff kind of on the enterprise is not not just not my favorite stuff and i think that the 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 lack of stuff in the third act just like does sort of it's fine but you know, I, I think I wish it could have seen the full version of it, all that sort of stuff. All that being said, again, the character stuff is top notch. There's a lot of fun character moments. The character of Cybok is much more interesting than people give credit for. The beyond the memes, like I think that that scene with where they actually meet God is is generally one of the fun Star Trek scenes of like you know, kind of you know, an ending and there's still great stuff with Kirk McCoy and bones and just some really fun world building stuff and some character building stuff. There's still a lot to like in this movie. I think, and I think people are much too harsh on it. I think for me, if I had to do like a ranking right now, it would be, I think it would be dead in the middle for me. Mm-hmm. Cause I think it's like Graphicon voyage home. No, not voyage home. Yeah, no voyage home. What am I saying? Yeah, no, I think it's Graphicon voyage home. Then this, then search for Spock, and then the motion picture. Right, I, I this, and I like the motion picture too. Right. I did not hate it. I haven't disliked any of the movies. Well, personally. I think, and I think that's really been the fun of rediscovering these all together. And it's going to be interesting to wrap up 
the original series next time, but this has been a very just solid series of films to watch. Like I would genuinely love to do these as like a marathon with like people and stuff like that. Like, I think this would be a lot of fun to just go through all these movies. Um, but I, 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 it really is just like, I love these characters and I love these characters interacting with each other. It's just so much fun. It's really a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and like I said, like, I, I'm sure if you like met, if you met William Shatner and you're like, listen, I really like Star Trek five. He, he would, he would find you to be a very happy man. Uh, I'll get him on the horn. I'll let him know. Um, That's something we don't say enough. Get a, oh, the, the old school on the horn thing. Yeah. Get somebody on the horn. Yeah. Um, so let's wrap this up. Let's talk about what happens at the movie. So the movie opens up on uh june 9th 1989 uh shatner recalls staying up all night the the night before release he said that the first two reviews he saw the la times and i I can't remember the other one off the top of my head um were good reviews so he immediately called um nimoy and said like i think we i think i did it. i think we got something unfortunately the rest of the reviews came in and they were not good uh, the movie was pretty uh, criticized uh, at the uh, critics. Um, basically, people found people did like it. Like there were good reviews of it, but people found it to be okay to bad. They didn't really like the the pacing of the film. They didn't really like the plotting of the film. They thought that some of its elements were ridiculous, and by by mention, they thought the third act was sort of sort of lacking. Um. So basically, this was just not well-reviewed. And on top of the not well-reviewed, it was a big part of that infamous summer of 89. So it was going up against Batman, Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, License to Kill. We've talked about this before, that summer of 89 was just a really big summer, and it just did take away from some of these sort of films. Uh, so the movie ended up making... Uh, $63 million at the box office on a $33 million budget, much less than The Voyage Home's $140 million at the box office. So it was viewed as a disappointment on all fronts. Um, and, and Paramount was very much like, all right, well, that's no more Shatner in the director's chair, uh, which we will definitely discuss next time as well. Uh, but Paramount was a little little freaked out now because, again, they had built these franchise, this Star Trek franchise of being these lower-budget movies that would make a lot of money, a sense Wrath of Khan. Now they're at a point where it's like, okay, we're at a point where this movie didn't do too well, this cast is getting older, and we do have this other series that had a, did have a rocky production for a season but was seeming to come around in terms of the ratings. So they still had that next generation in their back pocket but paramount was starting to get a little bit like okay we need to really think about what we're what's our next element here but that's for next time um shatner actually uses one of your favorite phrases uh when discussing this movie he calls it an interesting failure that uh, he felt that he there's a lot that he likes and he's ultimately proud of the movie but in many ways for his first film project you know, and, and not having sort of in the just sort of the knack that Nimoy did that he felt like he kind of bit off a little bit more than he could chew with this one. Um, this film is genuinely regarded as the weakest of the original series films. 
um, and does kind of stay lower as the original series um, in terms of the whole Star Trek series is low on a lot of people's list, though it does have its defenders that people do like the Cybok character. People, despite it being Spock's brother, that people do like the Cybok character. They do like sort of some of the stuff with uh, the, the, the main trio, everything like that. Um, but, uh, and, and even Shatner has kind of said that like the more he reflects them on this film, the more he's proud of the work he does though. Uh, back when the motion picture got its sort of director's cut and got the budget to kind of redo its effects and everything like that. When Shatner found out about this, he asked Paramount for money to do the ultimate version of Star Trek five to showcase his vision and, and Paramount said, no. They, they're like, they're not, <laughs> yeah, they're like, no, I don't think so. No, 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 no. So, because in comparison, like the motion picture has really gotten risen back through the ranks, even though, again, it's pacing as it's always been. It's criticism. People, people appreciate the effects. People like the ending of the motion picture and kind of find it to be this kind of weird, you know, the weird first one. Whereas five has never really gotten that due. Yes. It does have things that people like about it does have some of its defenders, but as of right now, as of this recording, it never really has had it's, it's like, Oh, this is actually like kind of let's rediscover. Let's reinterpret this movie. Right. Uh, but you know, you never know. It, it's one of those things where never know what can come back sometimes, but uh, it's generally still, it's just kind of has, it's sort of the infamy sort of thing. And I think it's one of the things we've talked about this a couple times over the podcast, but it's kind of one of the things that hangs over the film is its reputation more so than its actual content. Like I said, like people know that yes, I would it, agree. It, it's the Shatner directed film. It's about finding God. What does God need with a starship? All that sort of stuff. Like, well, yeah. More... Cause it's funny because the, what does God need with a starship is often used as kind of like, Oh, like this is like the thing about, like the distillation of like this is this movie's dumb, but like to me, like I thought like that was actually that's a very probably Star- one of the well executed Star Trekky parts oh, of the movie. It's very Star Trekky. Like right. I said, so, very easily if this movie was an episode of the original series, that same ending would have definitely applied, hundred yeah. percent. Um, yeah. so that wraps it up for this time on the Star Trek side of things. Next time. We hit the end of the original series era. We are going to find peace with the Klingons. We're going to meet a shapeshifter. Uh, we're going to put Kirk on trial. And we're going to wrap up this whole original series thing with Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. But next time is not a Star Trek episode. Next time is a King Kong episode. And it's a big one, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are finally going to discuss uh, the Peter Jackson remake of King Kong. And I, I, and one that I think in many ways is sort of a definitive version of Kong for so many people uh, in terms of just like when you visualize Kong. So I always use the term interesting, but it really is going to be interesting to kind of revisit this kind of very expanded remake of the original and kind of to get those thoughts and compare it to you know, what we've seen so far on the Kong side of things. Looking forward to the revisit. And then with that, we'll have one more Kong roughly after that. And then we're going to have to talk about a different franchise. And what may that be? We'll find out soon enough. Yes, we will. All right, let's do our plugs. Bonzillapod at gmail.com, twitter.com slash Bonzilla007, facebook.com slash Bonzilla007, like and subscribe, iTunes, and also SoundCloud. 
leave those ratings and reviews folks. We again, appreciate your love and appreciate all your time listening to these episodes. All right, cool. All right with everybody. uh, We are going to head out of here and we are probably going to go to bed. I, I'm not in the mood to find God anymore. I, I was going to no. say we're, we'll find, well, let's go to, we, we'll even go. Uh, okay. I can't do that joke. Sorry. I was like, I was, I was going to make a Sean Connery shocker joke, but then I, Sean Connery is no longer with us. So that I is the best outro. This is, this is it. This I'm, is easily the best one. All right. I, I'm just going to, I'm going to stop digging my No, hole. Keep it going. No, no, man. This is awesome. I, I'm, I'm enjoying myself. Just no, I, it's time to, it's time to put down the shovel. Yeah. It's time to say goodbye. Sure. Anything else? Um, I guess we'll see no time to die someday. Bye-bye. <laughs>